Most of us love the idea of traveling, but between the constraints of money, time, and the hustle and bustle of day-to-day -day life, few of us ever get to visit all of the places we'd like to experience. On this show, Phil and Pete have conversations with interesting people who have, and do, live in some of the most remote and exotic locales on the planet. Together, we'll travel the world from the privacy of your earbuds in Vicarious Encounters. Vicarious Encounters. I'm Phil. And I'm Pete. And today we have Tim McSaveny with us, and he spent seven or eight years in Tanzania, and he's going to talk to us all about it. But before that, mm. tell me, Pete, what have you been up to? Well, this past weekend, my wife and I went, uh, we drove up to Oklahoma from the friendly confines of the DFW Texas area, and uh, we got to see a band called Towers in concert. And stayed at a little Airbnb up there, so it, it was it was really it was a nice weekend. It, it, uh, it's one of those moments when you're really glad that you don't have small children at home. Are is this a new band? Uh, yeah, they're kind of like an indie folk uh, acoustic sort of thing. Um, they've actually been around for a little while. I think their first album was like 2014. They're new to me. Uh, not hugely popular, but very interesting, and uh, they they did not fail to impress. Very good. I'm actually pretty much stuck in the uh, the 90s and early 2000s. I, uh, three weeks ago, uh, went down to St. Louis and saw Reliant K. And uh, it was wow. as fantastic as it would have been if I if it had been 2003, because they're really good at what they do. Okay. Very good. So what about you, Phil? What do you got going on these days? Uh, you know, not a ton. I am getting ready to... Uh, perform a concert myself here locally at a winery um, and that'll be my first live concert I've performed since oh goodness probably 2018 hadn't been playing for a little bit and then COVID kind of shut down anybody doing any of that for a while and so now it's uh, kind of time to get back at it so just been preparing for that a winery are they paying you in product uh no, I don't think that I would enjoy that product. I, I really okay. uh, actually actively dislike wine. So, okay. Okay. But yeah, but there you are performing at a winery. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this week, as I said before, we have with us Tim McSaveny. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're great. It's uh, great to have you on here. And just a little bit of background for you uh, about the show. We like to have folks on who have spent time away from the States and can talk to us about their experiences and the perspective that they have coming back and how, uh, you know, the funny moments, the significant moments, all those things that have wrapped up together to become the story of who they are now. That's what we're hoping to hear from you. So how long were you in uh, Tanzania? Uh, we went to Tanzania in 2012 and we came back in 2019. Although these days I actually travel back there about three times a year. How has COVID impacted your ability to make those trips? Oh, geez. You know, it was pretty impossible. Uh, the, the first time that it really impacted me, I was traveling March of, I guess it was 2020 and, oh man, all the plans got shot completely down and I had to wait for about six months before I could actually make it back. It set all of my timetables were just destroyed. It was a mess. And even now it's a big hassle because I got to get COVID tests and, you know, flying is a pain 
anyway, but flying with a mask for 40 hours is kind of a hassle. Anyway, it's uh, not that big a deal, but it is a, a bit of a pain. So Tim, give us the qu- quick overview. Like, you know, you land in Tanzania, you're, you're there 2012, and you set eyes on the place for the first time. What does it look like to you? What are your initial impressions? Oh, man. Okay. So the first thing that you have to experience is this airport. So these days, the airport is new. They have they just built another one. But in 2012, man, that airport, the thing what they'll do is you get off the plane and you're just like looking around, there's glass, there's a lot of people and you're just like, oh, it feels like it's a little bit normal. It's like super hot, but whatever. But then they immediately take you down into this dank, scary, dark basement. And then they take your papers and then you just wait and you don't know what's going on you're supposed to kind of get some kind of visa but you have to like buy it right there and so you just wait and then people are kind of like staring at you and then maybe they yell at you in swahili you don't know what they're saying and then somehow you give them money you know crisp 100 bills that they ask for and then after a while you get the papers and you leave and you think did i just get robbed i don't even know but it's uh (laughs) not great the experience was actually a fairly terrifying and nobody can help you because they can't come in to help you at the airport because of the security stuff. And so you're just there alone trying to figure out how to work it. After that, it's not so bad, but the initial experience is poor. Yeah, that sounds uh, very stressful. And that's, that was like back in 2012, this was uh, not with regard to anything COVID or anything. This has just been the way it has been. Yeah, yeah. They just had an old airport that didn't have great facilities. But these days, the airport that they built, ah, it's beautiful. It's open and you never have to, you know, be cheek by jowl with 300 people. It's above ground. It's at least above ground. So, yeah, there's some uh, some major improvements. You live there a number of years. You mentioned Swahili. How's your Swahili these days? Actually, my Swahili is pretty good. That was my thing. When we were on our team, you know, we got a team of 20, 25 people and everybody kind of has their specializations or whatever. But for me, learning Swahili was like my thing. And nowadays, because I travel back there a lot and also because now that I'm in the States, I'm actually working with a Congolese refugee group. They're also speaking Swahili. I get a lot of practice. So my Swahili still is it's pretty good. You know, it's it's gotten a little bit rusty because I don't live there, but I'm still pretty satisfied with it. Okay. Okay, so tell us a little bit about some of your experiences. I know that one of the big things that we like to talk about probably because uh, Pete and I uh, like to eat, we like to talk about food. What are some <laughs> of the um, most unique or uh, strangest things maybe you ate there or any interesting uh, eating experiences while you were there? Sure, Phil. I've got uh, an interesting one. So I was out doing some language survey. One of the things that I did was trying to figure out like where the borders of a certain language is spoken and like how vital the language is, you know. Uh, So we were out in the middle of nowhere because that's, that's where these languages are. You know, you're just a hundred miles off of the paved roads. And so I was out there uh, in a group, in an area where most people are Muslim. And uh, I was traveling with a guy. It was late at night. We're at a guest house. And he says, hey, do you want to eat some donuts? Of course, we're speaking in Swahili. So it's not exactly donuts. They're mandazi. They're like fried dough things though. And I was like, donuts? Uh, I mean, it's already like 9 p.m. It's pretty late, but yeah, sure. You know, it's like missionary 101 is that you just, you, you eat what people offer you so i'm like yeah cool donuts whatever and he's like okay great but we can't eat them until midnight and i was like what (laughs) i don't understand but 
okay if you say so. So I just went to bed and around midnight, hear a motorcycle pull up. Uh, he knocks on my door. He's like, all right, donuts are ready. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm ready for the donuts, I guess. And uh, so I come on out. There's like this little entrance area. And uh, he goes out and talks with this dude on the motorcycle. And they've got like a hot pot on the, on the back of it. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. This is my nephew. So he brings the hot pot up and he sets it on, on the table in kind of the main room of the guest house where we're staying. And he opens it up and I'm looking inside thinking, are there donuts? But it wasn't donuts. It was boar, like wild boar. And it was cooked, but it also had like hairs on it. You know, it was like <laughs> rough, a little rough. Definitely wasn't donuts. But after a minute, I realized what was going on, that since we're in this like really Muslim area, talking about pork out loud is like not safe. Oh. So whenever they are talking about it, they've got these special cryptonyms that they use to describe it. And so donuts was the cryptonym that he was using. I later on learned that also Catholic goat is one of our cryptonyms and kitimoto, which means the hot seat, because you don't want your imam to show up while you're eating pork. So you're kind of in the hot seat, eat the pork and get moving. Anyway, it was, it was quite, a, quite an experience. <laughs> It still has yeah. the hair on it. I mean, the benefit there, I suppose, is that you can eat and floss simultaneously. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I mean, you know, it's hair, powder, you know, whatever you want your donut covered with. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you learned Swahili, but I'm sure that when you got there, it's certainly for a while, you, 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 there had to be a learning curve. Were there, were there any moments there when you said something dumb in public or some sort of language blunder uh, when you hadn't quite figured out the language yet? You know, I'm not a, I'm not a good person for this because my language was good. Like I started out good and it's not fair. Everybody was so, but they were just mad because I was such a hot shot. And I was like, Oh, you know, like maybe you should learn how to speak Swahili a little bit better, even though I'd only been there for like a couple months, but that actually being so good was what got me in some hot water. So I was at the language school. And so I just started and it took me about, you know, two or three weeks. And I was just blazing through all these lessons at the, at the language school. And there's some other folks there, some friends of ours. Well, the friends of ours now, but I think that at the time they were just like, who is this guy? They had already been there for like three months and I'm like surpassing them. And so they decided to play a trick on me by introducing me to their friend and pretending that he was like a Swahili person. Now he had really dark skin, but he was from Barbados. And so oh. he, he, uh, he, he came up to me and he sort of like greeted me in Swahili. And so I started to talk with him in Swahili and I was like starting this really long, like kind of exciting conversation. Then he just laughed at me in that kind of Caribbean kind of way. And he was like, sorry, we got you. And I was like, Oh, you're not even Tanzanian, are you? <laughs> I felt really, really bad. And also racist. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I should probably be able to tell the difference, but I can't somehow. <laughs> so what were some things you just loved about Tanzania? I'm, You know, being in the country that long, you must have found some things there that you really appreciated. Oh, man. Everything that that we did there, we just we, we really loved. But the thing that I loved the most was the community that we had. You know, we had a, a group of people that... We weren't just friends. It was like family, but like family in the good way, like people that you just were kind of inextricably connected to. And you had gone through all of these really challenging experiences and, and really unique experiences too. So much so that 
even people who, you know, maybe came from really disparate backgrounds, you end up being blood brothers with them. And that was uh, probably the most magical thing about the whole experience was like, I don't know, I never was in the military, but I feel like it was maybe a little bit like that, you know, like you're in like a squad of people who are like all doing the same thing. You're like, you're all kind of focused on one thing. And, you know, you've got like a camaraderie that was it's beyond anything that I'd experienced up until that point. Would you uh, attribute that to some extent to the idea that not only are you guys all going through a similar experience, you're working for a similar goal, but also you have sort of the same uh, limitations or parameters around you based on what you're doing and where you are? I don't I know if so. that makes sense. No, no, I totally agree. I think that it is definitely like that. But the the thing that really bounded us the most was shared trauma, I would say. Living overseas is not easy. I think that people just in general are not, they're not built to live outside of their culture. And so when you are doing that, it's like you're just in a constant state of having to like reevaluate your perspective and your values. And you feel yourself always being treated like a child or like an infidel or an invader or, you know, a tourist, you, you never, you never feel like you're fairly represented and you're always dealing with kind of like bad experiences. I mean, like we loved it, but there are a lot of bad things that, that happened to you when you're overseas because that's just the way that life was there. So those are the kinds of things that brought us together more than anything else. That's awesome. Hearing you hearing you say that makes me think that there's probably some things I could take away from uh, trying to recognize the perspective of refugees coming coming over here and what they're experiencing, you know. And and I just ask myself, how would I be able to lighten that burden for them when I'm experiencing? You know, how do I treat them just like individuals as opposed to labeling them uh, in one of those ways that you mentioned? Tim, what's something you learned about yourself from those difficult experiences? You know, I mentioned that my language was good, and that was kind of like my defining thing. Uh, And I really felt like I was hot stuff coming in to Tanzania. I had, you know, done a lot of study beforehand, and language is my thing. I was learning quickly. But it turns out that even if your language is decent, you can fail hard. You can fail a lot. Like quantitatively and qualitatively, my failures were big. And those sorts of things really taught me a lot of humility. So I think that, you know, it may not sound from this podcast. I don't know. Maybe people only know me if these 15 minutes, they're like, this guy's kind of full of himself. But in fact, I was really full of myself before. (laughs) And now I'm like less so. (laughs) But I think that's one of the biggest lessons I learned was like, you are going to fail. And in fact, I don't know, Tim Keller said one time that when he was going to New York City to preach there, he was like, I was sure I was going to fail. And I thought, that's okay. God can call you to fail. That's like a thing that he can do. And the success that we have in our minds isn't the kind of success that is like a true success. And so sometimes we have a lot of faith in like the God of our plans or like the God of doing the the best things, the cool things, the right things. But in fact, the real God wasn't exactly like that. When we encountered all those failures, I feel like we learned more about God uh, through it. That uh, actually, that's interesting. That brings me to a question that I was going to 
ask you, you know, you talked about this idea of what success looks like and how I, I often think about whether or not my idea of what success looks like is overly dependent on my own cultural views, the way that I have been raised and the way I have been taught to define success. And so that leads me to the idea of, you know, you were over there for for seven years. That's a ton of time. When you were over there, what was something about our culture that you did not miss? What was something you were like, you know, I really don't feel bad about being free of this thing, or this is just something that I learned that I came back and recognized, hey, I don't necessarily like this in who we are as a culture. Oh, man. you. So, you know, we're living in a really multicultural kind of place. There are a lot of Westerners from like Europe and all different places and a lot of folks from all over. But man, you can spot those Americans a mile away. There's something about Americans, right? They're like. I don't know. I mean, it's hard because people like me, I feel like sometimes we're just like, yeah, we're Americans, but we also just hate being American sometimes. And the the thing that you would notice is like these, like Americans, they just feel like they own every place that they come into. They're just like, you know, not ready to listen to other people. There's some kind of idea, you know, this this idea, I think it maybe even came out of like the 80s, this American exceptionalism, which actually used to be like an insult. The idea is that like Americans think that they are the best, the brilliant ones, the ones who can't take any advice from anybody. But that's like a weakness, you know, like we can't learn from anybody. We can't learn from anything. We just think that we already know it. And they're also really loud Americans. So it, it was nice to maybe get away from that. And, and then when you interact with people from other cultures, then you're the loud one. <laughs> that, that is, that is so funny. And I, I, if I can indulge myself just for a minute here, I, I have a, an example of that from my own mind. I remember when I was a senior in high school, um, Independence Day came out. And I thought it was the greatest movie I'd ever seen up to that point. And I saw it in theaters four times. And there's a part of that at the end of the movie or toward the end, whatever the climax is about to happen, where I think it's maybe a, a British um, officer or something. It says it's about time the Americans came up with a plan and then, they, you know, and then they save everything. And I'm like, and didn't, and I did, it, I didn't think anything of it, you know? And then I look back at on, uh, back on it later as I, as I'm older and can reflect like, wow, that is really arrogant and ridiculous and, and everything else. But I think that, uh, I think it, mir- it mirrors exactly what you're talking about really well. How about the opposite of that? What did you miss the most? You know, when you're in your own culture, you know how to interact with people in your own culture. I mean, more or less, I'm not particularly good at that. I never was, but at least in America, like I can go to the store and nobody will stare at me. I'm not, I'm like, I'm 5'11". I'm not extremely tall. So when I'm in America, I'm just a normal person. I'm just a person that nobody will even look twice at. But in the village that I was in, I mean, the people group I was working with, they happen to be pretty short. And so- like at 5'11", I was the tallest person in the village by like a lot. And also, I mean, I'm the only white person that ever even shows up in that village. So much so that when some of my friends ended up going there, they all were sure that they were me. And they were talking to them in this language. And they're just like, I don't understand. Why did you forget all of your language? And, and, uh, and they're like, we're not Tim. 
we're not him. I know it. You think that we look alike, but we don't. And, we, don't uh, we all look the same, man. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> and that's that's what it uh, that's what it felt like. There was no anonymity at all, and everywhere you go, you're like changing changing the environment you know it's like observation bias it's like you can't go to a place and not crash into that place like a meteor and so it's it's a little bit bad because there's no way that you can just be yourself in a place or be relaxed in a place because you got to be on people are looking at you people are paying attention to every little thing that you're doing and they're also judging you a lot because they're just like I wonder why he did that. Or like, I wonder why his kids are like that. Like they don't know because the things that we're doing are opaque and bizarre to them. So when we're doing them, they're just like, ah, man, I really think that they should be doing something different. That's what they're thinking about me. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's pretty challenging to live in that space all the time. You know, it can be kind of exhausting. So you're back now, now that you're back in America, what do you miss about Tanzania? (laughs) You know, I miss I miss being good at stuff. You know, like when I was in Tanzania, I was good at the things that I did. I I spoke Swahili well. I, you know, I'm a city boy from Syracuse. And so when it came to things like driving a truck, driving this big diesel kind of vehicle into the bush, well, that is not a thing that I was naturally good at. But I worked at it and I became a pretty good driver of my Nissan Patrol, the kind of vehicle that I had there, I felt like this is something that I'm good at. Driving through African traffic, you know, it's not simple. And it's also not the sort of thing that your average American really knows how to do. But when you leave, all that stuff is stripped away from you. You know, you end up thinking like, well, who am I if I can't do the things that I'm good at? You know, we always gravitate towards the things that we are good at because it's like what puts us in the best light or whatever. But I, I really had to struggle with that, leaving, saying like, well, what is, my, what is my value if all the things that I'm good at, I can't do anymore? Do you think that there's an extent to which you, when you were in Tanzania, you found yourself redefining who you were, and then that definition didn't fit or didn't work anymore once you came back? Oh, of course. Yeah. I, I, so 2019 is like the year that we were coming back was like, it was just the darkest year of our whole lives because it was such a, you know, it was like a collapse of all of the things that we had built about ourselves and about our lives. We had our dream and we had our vision. And in fact, even more than that, a normal person can have a vision, but like when you're a missionary, it's like you're being called by God himself. And then it breaks and you're just like, what? What did I do wrong? Maybe, maybe I didn't understand anything about my entire life up until this point. It felt like a death and also just like a complete obliteration of what I had come to know and what I had come to believe about myself. It was a really challenging time to live through. And we had to, in the end, really just cling to this idea that. God doesn't care what we do. It, and it's weird because, you know, like we did, we did all the things that we did because we thought that that was like something that would please God. And then when we come back and we were just like, well, he could have protected us from 
the reasons that we were coming back, but he didn't. And so we felt like we were doing everything for him. And he just like, let us go. Like he, he is like, it wasn't valuable to him is, is how it felt. And it felt really like we were abandoned in a lot of ways too, but we weren't. And in that kind of dark night, uh, he came to us and gave us the truth that, you know, we're, we're children of God. Whether we are doing something great or doing something completely standard or not doing the, anything at all, like he doesn't gauge his like our worth based on what we're doing, but instead just on who we are. And that was uh, that was something that I needed to learn. And I had to learn. I had to learn it the hard way. That's uh, that's powerful. Thanks for sharing. Sorry. Maybe maybe that's too heavy. <laughs> no, no, no. That was great. Um, How's it changed your place here now that you're back in America? Well, you know, we really thought that we were losing everything uh, in 2019, and I didn't know what we were going to do. I was like, ah, maybe I'll just try to like get a job, like a normal job. And we had to be completely like divested of all of the things that we cared about and believed in and just stripped down before God decided to just lift us up and give us something else, give us something even better. It was kind of amazing, actually, because at the time, I was not even knowing if I could do more work in Tanzania or not, but it turned out that I could continue my work there, even from the States. Like It wasn't going to be perfect, but it was going to be able to go on. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be, maybe I can still do this stuff. And then on top of it, I got asked to be a part of a different project, the one that we're working on here in Louisville, and they needed like exactly me. They needed a person who spoke Swahili well, who was Bible translator, who knew about Bantu linguistics. Like That's what they were looking for, but they couldn't find one. And here we were in the Midwest. We were like two hours away from this Congolese refugee group that really needed a translation. And so uh, now I feel like, I don't know, it was, it's a little bit Job-like, you know, where you just like everything gets destroyed. And then in the end, you've got like twice as much as you started with. <laughs> and so uh, I feel like uh, God is, he kind of honored what we, what we wanted and, and rescued us, even though he didn't need to, we learned that we could live without it. But, you know, our God is the kind of God who gives good gifts. And so that's, uh, that's how we felt uh, and how we're feeling now. So you've gotten to see a really neat part of the world. I have to ask you, did you ever get to go on a safari? <laughs> did I go on safari? I went on dozens of safaris because we had a game reserve that was like just an hour, hour and a half away from where we lived. It was called Mikumi. And I loved going there because I got this truck and it's so cheap to go and I get to drive myself. So like, I'm the docent, I'm the dude who gets to like take people around, show them the animals or whatever. And I love that. Like I've got a spirit of a docent, like in my heart. So anytime guests would come, I'd be like, you guys need to see the animals. Let me take you out there. I really want to take you out there. So we would make time, you know, so the Jesus film people come. I'm just like, we're going to see the animals, different kinds of people come to like watch the kids during the meetings. I'm like, come with me. I'm going to show you some animals. And, uh, and we did, you know, Scott Graves, actually came by you guys know him he came by and uh we got to see a leopard together in the uh, game park it's the only time that any of us have ever seen it but uh we were sitting right next to each other 
I was driving the truck and he was in the passenger seat. We got to see this uh, beautiful leopard just like maybe 20 seconds just staring at us. Ah, oh, man, it was magical. It was it's it's uh, one of the best things about going to Tanzania for sure. Wow. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So you've gotten to see obviously a part of the world I'd love to see. In fact, I wish I'd have gotten there while you were still there because I'd want you to take me to see the animals. <laughs> and I think I think Phil probably feels the same way. But I got to know, now that you've been there, it, if you had two weeks, all expenses paid to go anywhere in the world you've never been, where would you go? Oh, man. You know, it's probably going to be like Prague or something. You know, I never did get to experience any kind of thing in Europe. Uh, you know, some of our friends like you guys, you got to spend time in France, you know, learning French or whatever, but we never got to experience any kind of Europe stuff. Maybe I go to Scotland. Maybe I go to Japan. Oh man. There's a million places that I would go. I, I can give you a, uh, a ringing endorsement of Prague. Uh, oh yeah. My wife and I were able to go there. We were only there a couple of days, but it was amazing. It was one of the coolest cities that I've been to. Yeah. That's my dream. I don't know. Sikomoja Mungo Kipenda. One day, if the Lord wills, we'll uh, we'll be able to take a trip like that, but not with all these little kids. It's probably not worth it. <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Tim, for talking about uh, your time in Tanzania and uh, and who you are now on the other side of it. And it was wonderful. And now it's time for us to go to our next segment of the episode, and that is our top five. It's time for another Vicarious Encounters Top 5. I have to uh, I have to thank my co-host Pete for indulging me here. For uh, our listeners, I will tell you that uh, Tim is a sometimes professional player of the card game Magic the Gathering. It is also one of my great loves, except that he is... Uh, clearly good at the things that make you good at it and i am not i am in fact terrible but um i blame that on the fact that i am an english teacher and not a math teacher because the math guys are the ones who are really good at this game because it's a math game and i and i'm terrible at that part of it (laughs) but um pete is going to uh, indulge us here as we talk about our top five favorite magic the gathering cards of uh, all time The way that this works, Tim, so that you know, is uh, we will count them off. We'll do number five, and we'll both talk about our number fives and fours, threes, twos, and ones. And in a normal normal top five, all three of us will be talking about it. Um, Pete is a little out of his depth here, so... uh, (laughs) He can can chime in with anything that he wants to say that may or may not be uh, additive to the uh, conversation, but uh, feel free, Pete, to... to, uh, <laughs> to say something if you want. <laughs> okay, so number five. My number five is the creature uh, Vampire Nighthawk. I uh, yeah. love everything about it. I feel like it is the perfect creature. A two, three for three, flying lifelink death touch. It's everything I could want in a vampire and more. Um, and I have I have one. Uh, many a game because it was available to me and so it is my number five nice all right for five i cheated a little bit and i picked a whole block because (laughs) mirage block is it's an old school kind of format but 
all of the cards are inspired by Africa. And one time just uh, because I felt like the kind of people who like know a lot about Magic the Gathering and also speak Swahili really well, like the the overlap there is basically just two circles. There's like none except for me. So uh, uh, on my on a Reddit on a subreddit that's a magic kind of themed subreddit, I went through every single card in the card file and talked about how they were influenced by Swahili words or Swahili ideas. So like, I don't know, any of our listeners know any Mirage cards probably at all, but there's quite a few Swahili uh, Swahili nuggets hidden in uh, in there that I really appreciated. Uh, this is just me asking, and maybe you know, was, uh, was Teferi introduced in the Mirage block? Uh, you know, I think that, the actual character is part of Mirage, yeah, but there weren't any planeswalkers all the of way course. back then, you know. So maybe the character was, but uh, but not as like the iconic card that we know now. Sure, sure, awesome. That is very cool. All right, now number four, and my number four is um, Predator Ooze, and Predator Ooze is a great card because it's indestructible and it gets bigger every time you attack and the first time i ever won friday night magic it was because of uh my predator ooze deck and so it always has held a special place for me i mean i had to i had to kill some of that that was in my shower but that's that's all i <laughs> Uh, so for my number four, I picked uh, a really famous card, one of the Power Nine, Ancestor Recall. But I picked Ancestor Recall specifically because it is a real showcase of how clueless the people who are making magic were in the early days. You know, so maybe not everybody knows, but Ancestor Recall was part of a cycle. It's basically so Ancestor Recall, one blue mana. You know, there's five colors of mana. One right. blue mana, draw three cards. Okay, so one blue mana, draw three cards. One red mana, deal three damage. That's lightning bolt. One green mana, a creature gets plus three, plus three. Okay, giant growth. One black mana, make three black mana. So it's like pay one to get three. Yeah, that's fine. And then one white mana, gain three life. And these people, these people who made alpha, they thought gain three life, draw three cards, basically the same. Yeah, they that's... were, they couldn't have been wronger. I, I, I mean, and that was just Richard Garfield, right? Yeah. I mean, he was doing it on his own. So I have to, I have to attribute it to that at some point, but he's a mathematician. He should have known better. Like uh card advantage is definitely more important than gain three life. That's Heavens right. to Betsy. That's rough. Oh, <laughs> it's a great card. And um, if, uh, if Pete, you want to pick up a uh, a commemorative card for this, I suggest you get yourself an ancestral recall. It'll probably only set you back about a thousand dollars. I'll get right on that. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number three. My number three is a very common card. Most people will never think about second twice, and that is Halimar Excavator. Oh, Alamar Excavator. One in a blue ally that mills your opponent for how many allies you have? Yes, I love mill. <laughs> mill is my favorite win condition. This is why I don't win, because mm. I like to play mill and mill almost never wins. But mill tells a more interesting story to me, and that's why I played the game, if that makes sense. And Halimar Excavator was the... Um, the rock of my first mill deck along with Hedron Crab. 
but uh, hedron crab didn't uh, didn't multiply and ping off of other things the way that uh, Halibar excavator does. Awesome. All right. Well, for my number three, I picked Fires of Invention. This is a card that came out not too long ago, and the reason that I picked it was because it was the first time that I actually cashed, like making money playing magic was with a, a tournament deck that had fires of invention it had yorian the sky nomad as the companion so it's a you know nice. big fat 80 card deck and fires of invention is three and a red it says you can't cast spells on your opponent's turn on your turn you can only cast two spells but you don't have to tap mana to cast them and so you uh you use it to just put a lot of really powerful things on the board that have like on board kind of like mana abilities so you use it with kenrith you use it with all these cavaliers and then you can uh, you can really stomp your opponent quickly with it anyway i won a thousand bucks playing with uh in, in a tournament with that deck and uh and so it's got a like a soft spot in my heart is the first time that i was like maybe i'm good enough to just like win a ton of money playing this game <laughs> that's that's awesome that's very cool i have won promo cards uh in the <laughs> tournaments i've played <laughs> Number two. All right, number two. My number two is a fairly recent card, and that is Urza, Lord High Artificer. Yeah, that guy's a house. He's so good. Um, Commander is my favorite format, and he is probably my favorite commander because uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the whole game runs on the idea of what is called mana, and you have to spend mana to make things happen. Well, Urza makes all of your artifact creatures also mana. And so you can create lots of mana really fast and do really brutal things to your opponents. And he's always fun. My number two is I decided to, you know, this is like a page from your book. Telling a story, I think, is like a really compelling part of the whole magic experience. And Illusions of Grandeur, which is an old school card, uh, has a, a kind of a story to it. Where So it's a card that gives you 20 life. Cool. And then when it leaves play, you lose 20 life. Not great. And it has cumulative upkeep. So you got to pay more mana every single turn you got it, or else it will go away and you'll lose the life and then it won't be useful. But what you can do is pair it with a ridiculous card, Donate, which says, give your opponent one of your cards <laughs> and so you play illusions of grandeur you get these crazy illusions you gain 20 life then you give them the card and then they can't pay you the mana and so it goes out of play and then they lose 20 life and immediately lose the game it's a it's a very compelling story for me and uh, it was kind of like one of the things that opened my eyes to like this game it can be really tricky yeah yeah that's awesome that's a great uh <laughs> that's great and now, number one. Number one is completely a sentimental choice. And uh, I'm guessing maybe Tim has some sentiment in his as well. My number one choice is cranial plating. Artifacts are my favorite things. Artifacts are great because unlike any other card, they don't have color. Okay, sometimes they do. But by and large, they don't have color. And so you can cast them with any mana, which is great. And cranial plating is an equipment and you put it on your creature and your creature gets one extra power for every artifact you have on the board. Well, there are a great huge number of artifacts that cost zero. So you can just play them. And there are also artifact lands and you can play those. And so cranial plating can make things giant and you can beat people down very, very quickly with it. 
And I fell in love with this card when I played probably my second or third game of Magic ever when the person who taught it to me said, oh, hey, here's this deck I built. Watch what I can do. And I had an elf deck that was a pre uh, a pre-constructed deck that I bought from Walmart. And he destroyed me in like three turns. And I said, that is the greatest card ever. I must have one. And, uh, and so I've been using them ever since. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've got a sentimental one as well. So my number one, well, I'll, I'll paint a quick story. I'm 11 years old and I bought my first pack of magic. It was Legends. So old school magic. And in the rare slot for my, uh, for my pack that I got was a card called Thunder Spirit. Still on the reserve list, magical card. Because it had... As its, uh, as its flavor text, a line from Watership Down, a book that I loved as, as a kid. But it was brilliant because the line that they used was, it was full of fire and smoke and light, and it drove between us and the Ephraphans like a thousand thunderstorms with lightning. And in the book, this is a reference to a train. Like, you know, it's about bunnies, the 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 Adams book Watership Down and so they didn't understand what the train was because they're rabbits and so they considered it to be like some sort of like force of nature some sort of creature some sort of like magical being and those brilliant people at Wizards of the Coast decided to take that line and ascribe it to the Thunder Spirit card to say that it's like an actual spirit like an actual creature I. I was completely hooked when I saw that card for the first time. I was like, look at them using something from the real world and like repurposing it in order to make like this really beautiful, compelling story. Oh man, I was in after that. That's awesome. I have actually always been impressed with my ability to learn new English words because they use them as names on magic cards. (laughs) I mean, your vocabulary can increase greatly uh, with that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, audience, for indulging our uh, our nerdier side there with our top five this week. And now we are going to move to our next segment, which is are you ready? It's time for Unpopular Opinions. Tim was gracious enough to give us an unpopular opinion that will be unpopular with most people that I know. And uh, whether or not it's unpopular with me, it probably depends on my mood. But Tim, go ahead and give us your unpopular opinion. And then uh, Pete and I will chime in as we see fit. All right. Well, I don't I don't love starting fights with people, but I had to go with this. This is definitely the way that we feel in our family. And that is that pets are just the worst. Why would you shackle yourself to this animal? You like you get all of like the cons of having kids and none of the pros or at least very few of them. They've got a gigantic upkeep like their cost is just astronomical. They make a giant mess all the time. There's everything terrible about it. And I don't know if other people feel this way, but when I go to a house that has a pet in it, I'm just like, this place is filthy. There is like hair all over. It's gross. And yet maybe they don't notice or maybe they're like fooling themselves and being like, oh yeah, you know, my my cat doesn't shed. My dog, they're, they're nice and clean. Well, I'm telling you right now, they're not. Ouch. Ouch. It hurts. 
All right, sorry. Was that too aggressive? I can I can no. pull it back if you want. No, no, I like that a lot. That's <laughs> okay. And, and let's talk about the concept. So the concept here of unpopular opinions is you might not like the one this week, but tune in to our next episode. And you might think, finally, somebody's saying it out loud. And there are going to be people who listen that like what you said is going to absolutely resonate with them. And, and <laughs> I can't argue with what you're saying, except the useless part. You know, I've got I've got two cats. Uh, I'm a dog person. That should tell you where the idea <laughs> to get cats came from. But I will say that it has been. When you are going through a difficult season of life, a, a pet is definitely a can be a great companion. Uh, in French, animal de compagnie, uh, is, and I'm probably pronouncing it terribly. I apologize to all of our native French speakers because they they, de- they definitely can give you a level of companionship. And you know, I I find that human beings don't like me to pet them as much. Like my cat will sit in my lap for an hour and let me pet him. And there's nobody else in my family that, let, let, that will let me do that. Not even my wife. So I, I definitely think that there are benefits, but I, you know, I can't argue with what you're saying. There's no question too, that a pet houses have a particular smell. Like you walk in, you're like, yep, dog, there, there's some truth there. Uh, Phil, what do you think? It's, it's hard. Cause I see both sides. We, my wife and I, before we had children, adopted a dog as a trial child in 2005. Okay. And she just passed away in the, uh, in the fall of 2021. So she was with us for 16 years and it was just always this uh, constant source of companionship, even when even when uh, she did things that were frustrating, it was still a, there's a level of uh, affirmation without any strings attached that come with a pet that you don't get from people. I never had to question whether my dog had an ulterior motive because the answer was always yes. And it'll always involve food. Um, But, (laughs) but there is a level of freedom now that we have not known since 2005, Mm. even with two children of being able to go wherever we need to go without having to make arrangements. And that is wonderful on that side of it. I would not have done anything differently. I loved having our dog while we did, but I'm not in a hurry to replace her either. If that makes sense. That's good. All right. Well, uh, Tim, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode of Vicarious Encounters. We thank you so much for joining us. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. And it was as enlightening as I had expected it to be to hear about your time in Tanzania. Thank you once again for being with us. I had a great time. Thanks a lot for inviting me. And for you listeners out there, if you have an unpopular opinion you'd like to share and have us discuss, we can do that. And also, if you have a top five you'd like to hear, let us know. Email us at vicariousencounters at gmail.com. You can also find Vicarious Encounters on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. If you just search Vicarious Encounters, we will pop up there as well. And we have a Patreon that you can find as well if you decide that uh, this uh, level of uh, mildly insubordinate nonsense uh, and occasionally interesting conversation is worth your time and support. We would appreciate that as well. But uh, you can find us in uh, all of the places you would expect to do so. 
eventually. I am currently, yeah, I've got uh, I've got uh, Twitter and Instagram also on the list. And when I get around to creating those accounts, those will be available as well. But your best way to get a hold of us now is through our email, as Pete said, vicariousencounters at gmail.com or on the Facebook page and post up any sort of comment you have there. And we will see you next time. Have a great night. Or morning. Or morning. Or day. Or, day. or evening. <laughs> or tomorrow. Or tomorrow. Or tomorrow.